there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Happy fall. Hope you're enjoying your classes this semester. And for those of you who are already in the working world, no matter what job you currently have, even if you aren't interested in becoming a journalist or a writer, my next guest is phenomenal at both and will absolutely give you a new appreciation for just how hard many journalists especially those who are super successful today, have to work to produce high-quality work and the surprising struggles they've been through in their own careers. So grab a mug of your favorite caffeinated beverage and take a chug, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. My next guest is actually one of the first interviews I did this past spring when I was still trying to figure out how I wanted to structure the T4C interviews. And so there is no pre-recorded introduction to Robert Draper, who is someone I had the pleasure of working alongside every now and then when I covered American foreign policy for CNN. Robert is a writer at large for the New York Times Magazine, and he's been there since 2008. He's also been a contributing writer to National Geographic since 2007. Robert is also the author of several works of fiction and nonfiction, including the New York Times bestseller, Dead Certain, The Presidency of George W. Bush. In this episode of T4C, Robert shares his writing process as well as his professional journey to where he is today. The New York Times Magazine expects me to furnish every year about three or four long stories that require that I spend anywhere from one to three or four months on, depending on the topic, depending on the project. These all generally have to do with domestic politics. Um, on rare occasion, I've done stories that relate not at all to politics. More often than not, they have to do with uh, our current president, Donald Trump. And these stories usually, let's say, in the course of a year, if I do four stories for the New York Times Magazine, two of them are cover stories. Those are much longer. It can go as long as about 7,000 words or so. And those are intended to be definitive portraits of an individual that I'm writing about or a particular topic, say the current vicissitudes of the Republican Party, for example, or of the Democratic Party for that matter. And then the other two stories that I will do will be slightly smaller, still not exactly what you'd call short stories. They're, say, anywhere between four and 5,000 words. And they tend to be about something that is maybe not as weighty or ambitious as a uh, an exhaustive chronicling of one of our two major political parties or of Donald Donald Trump's some conduct as president, but more maybe a slice of life through which you can kind of see a particular world in the microcosm of that slice of life. So that's the, that's the sort of thing that I do for the magazine. So how do you get your ideas? What how, what is your process for figuring out what the focus of your long pieces will be? When I was a freelance journalist, it was expected for me to come up with my own ideas. You can't sit around and wait for somebody, some editor of a major publication to call you and say, hey, I barely know you. Nonetheless, I'd like to take a flyer on you and have you do a big story about um, you know, Hillary Clinton's email server or something like that. So now that I'm you know, a more established writer, I would say about half the time I come up with my own ideas. The other half of the time, the 
editors of um, the magazine, whether it's the New York Times Magazine, National Geographic, or some magazine editors um, who just contact me asking if I'd be willing to do a particular story for them. They'll contact me and they'll suggest something. I'd say of those, most of the time, let's say 75% of the time, if they are suggesting an idea, I'll say, okay, because after all, it's sort of the path of least resistance. You know, once you've uh, a lot of the hard thing in magazine journalism is just getting uh, the editors interested in a particular topic. If they're already interested enough to contact you, then, you know, that's more than half the battle. The other half of the time, I come up with my own ideas. And usually I do so on the basis of what I think the editors will likely take. Uh, Since I know that they rely on me, that I'm one of the two or three people who, who write about politics for the magazine on a consistent basis, then it's probably a good idea for my idea to be politically related, to be something that we haven't covered before, and to be something that since for me, you know, that um, the magazine comes out 50 or so times a year, but it has, you know, a heavy rotation of lots of different writers. And since I'm only doing about four stories a year, sometimes a little bit more, but let's say four, then these stories have to count. They, they, they should be pretty important. And so I try to think of something that um, has not been written about before or something that I feel like I can do better than someone other p- journalists who have, in fact, written about the topic. And I think that I can do better than it, perhaps because I have better sourcing or because I have, you know, a, a, a more long range or a well-informed point of view than others who've written about the topic. For example, the um, special counsel Mueller, uh, I'm likely to be doing a story about that because I've been following the Mueller investigation for a while and because my grandfather was the special prosecutor for Watergate. So it's the investigation of a presidency is something that I've followed for decades. So it's basically, in other words, then a mix of what uh, of, of what editors will bring to me and what I in turn pitch to them. I'm glad you mentioned sourcing because that was something when I was moving along in my career as a journalist that felt very foreign to me and how yeah. to cultivate journalists. What's your approach? Excuse well, me, in, sources. Yeah, in cultivating sources, it's worth knowing a few things. First of all, that um, sources, prospective sources, generally speaking, don't sit around all day wishing that a journalist would contact them. So whenever you're reaching out to a source, uh, you should be mindful of the fact that they've got better things to do with their time and may actually want to avoid at all costs talking to a journalist. To honor their time that you don't want to waste, uh, learn everything you can about them. Learn everything about what they have already said on the subject so that you're not wasting their time just retreading uh, ground that they have already themselves traversed. They more often than not, they are risking something by cooperating with you. So uh, it's not enough just to honor their time. It's not enough just to learn about them. But you also have to honor their need for at times anonymity or at least confidentiality to, to be protected. And most of all, to be able to trust that whatever conditions they set, whatever it is that they say, that you are not doing a kind of drive-by shooting equivalent of journalism, that you're not simply taking whatever they say and using it uh, even if it's not what they intended and that you absolutely honor any commitments because after all, in the end, a journalist is only as good as the trust that a source can place in that journalist. And uh, the surest way to short circuit your career very early on is to burn someone as as um, as a source. Conversely, uh, if, if you do treat sources well, if they read what you write and, and, and say, wow, that person 
quoted me accurately. Uh, I asked not to be identified other than, say, as a senior White House official. And that's exactly what they did. I've gotten no blowback as a result of this. I can trust this person. The next time they call me, I'll take their call. Further, they may even say, you know what? I, I may reach out to this particular writer since he or she did me well the last time. There's a story that I would like to see out there. And that's the final thing I would say about sources. Once you've successfully cultivated them, once you've gained their trust, is that you have to recognize that sources have all sorts of motives for talking to the press. And they are not always patriotic motives. That does not make them liars. That does not mean that you should ignore them. But you should be mindful of their motives because it is, you know, it, it will have some bearing on their believability, their credibility uh, when it comes to certain things. Almost no one that you interview is telling the truth 100% of the time. That doesn't mean that they're lying to you sometimes. It means sometimes that they don't know the truth, that they're exaggerating for a fact, or they're spreading a rumor that they believe to be true, but it's not. It's also the case that there are people who um, are well known to be times confabulators who nonetheless are truthful on certain things. So, you know, just as in, you know, journalism is a distinctly human enterprise um, where finally it's about two people who are trusting each other. You know, you have to realize that when you talk to sources that they are not just, again, doing this uh, in fulfillment of um, the First Amendment, that they have reasons for their own. You should take that into account, but that's just part of the whole process rather than a, uh, a deal ender or a deal maker. Speaking of the process, you at this stage of your career obviously have developed a constellation of sources. You have developed your voice. You have relationships with various editors, in particular at the New York Times Magazine, but also National Geographic and obviously GQ from the past. Uh, take us into the various moving pieces for you as you are digging into a particular story that you're writing on deadline yeah. for, in this case, the New York Times Magazine. Sure. Well, for different writers, there are different processes. I'll describe to you mine because a lot of journalists like to interact constantly uh, with their editors. Uh, and there are some cases where I may be assigned a particular story and the story begins to move. What we conceived as um, idea for the story may no longer be legitimate. That actually, by the way, can be frustrating, but it can also be exciting because it means that you're moving away from some, you know, cute little concept that editors and writers dream up in an ivory tower. And you're happening upon the actual truth, the way things actually are. It's, it's during those times that I'll interact with editors. But for the most part, I like to do my own thing. I do my own reporting and uh, then, and I'll do that without any, you know, real interaction with my editors. I may keep them up to date, send them an email or two saying things are going well and I'm getting, you know, a lot of ABC. I may say to them, you know, this is a bigger story than we thought. <laughs> there have been times when I have said this is actually a smaller story than we originally conceived. But then comes the time of writing and I, while I'm doing the writing, I generally prefer to be left alone. It's, it's hard enough to sit and write uh, without like having somebody whispering in your ear, an editor, I mean, uh, saying, you know, I would rethink that lead that you wrote, or maybe you want to reorganize this. I'd like to write, um, you know, a lengthy story about, say, you know, 6,000 words or something. It takes me about a week to write. And that's a very long week of, you know, 10, uh, sometimes 12-hour days. And after I do that, then I turn it in. And the New York Times Magazine in particular has a very rigorous editing process where it goes through a kind of committee where my editor will read 
created it first. He will circulate it to one or two other editors and they will make some kind of you know general comments about it. Well, my, whether or not it seems good to them, but here's where it could use more work or here's what they think I ought to, that I've forgotten about that I should consider. And then my editor will incorporate those broad criticisms into uh, an edited version where he basically kind of blows up the story and, you know, will have lots of rewriting suggestions. That revision, you know, going from the first draft to the second draft is a pretty intense one and takes about three days to do. And then after that, there's usually at least one, sometimes two, sometimes three, sometimes more revisions where obviously the objective is to be rewriting less and less and less. But that's not always the case, especially because later in the game, the editor-in-chief will then read it and he'll weigh in. And it's it can be discombobulating and very frustrating. In an ideal world, everybody would sit and read it all at once. It's not the way things work at the Times Magazine because the editors are preoccupied with other issues, with other stories. And so different editors get to your story at different times and that's the best they can do, systematically speaking. So it's generally speaking, though, I guess it would boil down to this. I spend a month, maybe two months, maybe more reporting the story. Usually I will do an outline of this, of all the material that I've covered. And, and I would say that my reporting usually comes out to about a hundred pages, single space of, tr- of, um, interview transcripts. And, uh, and then in addition to that, you know, other like side reporting, other news clips that I found, I reduce all that to an outline that takes me about three days to do. And then five to seven days of actually writing it. Then another period of about two weeks, maybe of this constant back and forth of free writing. Then after that, it goes into fact checking where the fact checkers contact everybody who I've talked to, make sure that I didn't make this stuff up, make sure that I didn't mishear it, make sure that it is the honest truth. And that's a period that lasts about three or four very intense days. Um, where I'll get calls all hours of the day or night, both from the fact checker and sometimes from sources saying, hey, you know, the, the fact checker said that you quoted me saying blah, blah, blah. And that's not what I meant. And so that's a very 11th hour important period, but also excruciating because there could be a lot of last minute changes. And then, you know, comes the nice part that finally, and it's a Friday, usually in the cycle, the story will ship usually Friday evening, and then it will go online Tuesday or Wednesday of the following week and then be in the actual print edition the following Sunday. So that's the process um, in the main for me. As you know, Robert, our listeners are mostly young people between the ages of 18 and 25. Mm-hmm. How should they know or how might they know that the long form writing track is the right one for them? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. And I would start by saying that it is hard enough to be a writer for a living, but but getting started is really, really hard. And it's hard enough to break in. So make it easy on yourself. Try to write things that uh, on subjects that you know you're fluent in, that you know you have some expertise in, and that you know somebody is going to be interested in. Start with that and also know that when you do that, it is highly unlikely that an editor who's never heard of you before is going to publish an extremely long story of yours. The easiest way to go is to start with a 1,500-word to 2,500-word story, no longer than that, whether it's a feature story about a, you know a profile about a musician or a sports figure or a political figure or whatever. It's it's asking a lot of editors 
to go through and, and read and then edit a story that's much longer than that. So start with that. But if you also feel like that, you know, there are some people, Andrew, who really, they like moving from one topic to the next, or they like having a particular beat and they like to cover the day's activities. If that's what a person likes to do, then they should stick to daily journalism, which obviously is of immense value to the reading public. To me, long-form journalism exists to sort of sate the appetite of people who, beyond reading what they read daily, want to have a broader sense of a particular figure. If there's a person like, say, Trump's former campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, who we've heard so many things about and who shows up on the news constantly, but we don't have like a sense of who is who is this guy? How did he, how did this weird dude from New Hampshire uh, end up being someone who is a big part of the Donald Trump swap and, and uh, what drives him and uh, how's he making his money and is he going to show up in the White House and, and things that, that can't be encompassed by a daily newspaper story. If that's the kind of thing you're interested in, if you're willing to stick with a subject for you know months at a time and you like writing with a certain kind of point of view, you actually have a sort of flair for writing and have the discipline to stick with a subject without daily input from you know editors and knowing that if this one story doesn't do that well, either if you can't get it published or people ignore it, then you've spent you know, a month or two months or whatever uh, on this project that has not been fulfilling to you. So it comes, it carries with it certain risks. Uh, but, but I think that those really are different disciplines, the writing of long form that provides context and flavor and, and, and all that and daily journalism that gives us the daily heartbeat. You know, those are, they're both, I think, really, really important. There are not many people that I know of that do both. Some have skills that absolutely lend themselves to daily journalism, others to magazine writing. And I think that once you consider what each of those disciplines is supposed to do, then you can help figure out which one is for you. Robert, in the espresso shots, you already laid out for folks your feelings about majors with regards to whether or not they could be better prepared to become a journalist. But is there anything outside of hitting the books themselves, studying that you think aspiring journalists could be doing while they're in college to prepare them for for this profession? Well, I, the only thing I can think of is um, to meet other journalists who are established and to ask them about what they do. And, you know, I do think that, that um, it's helpful uh, when you're getting started to figure out, you know, what it is you can contribute in the world of journalism. And so it's useful then for an aspiring journalist to go to conferences uh, or to lectures where journalists are talking about what they do. And to see, so is Maggie Haberman, who covers the Trump White House for the New York Times. Is that something that I'd ever be interested in doing? Or would I be more interested, say, in environmental journalism? And uh, would I be more interested in writing about nutrition, more interested in writing about sports? I, I think that, you know, it's a good idea to follow the careers of journalists who you admire, decide for yourselves whether the path that they've taken is one that you at least would like to begin on. And then after that, I would say once you have gotten started, it's incumbent upon you and you alone to decide whether that's the path you want to continue on or whether you want to branch out and do something else. And when you do that, it's you who has to make that leap. It's never going to be an editor who says to you, you know, um, hey, you know, you're doing a great job covering, you know, the police beat, but I just can sense that there's probably a novel in you somewhere. So why don't you like take off and go write a novel for your, you know, the, these career decisions and, and when to 
take the jump from one discipline to the next, one topic to the next, those are on you. But I think to get started, I think it's really useful to kind of study the tradecraft of people who whose works you admire and then um, see what you can to get tips from them and see if the path that they've taken is a suitable one for you. So you went to UT Austin mm-hmm. and were a liberal arts major, which you explained to me before we started this interview is interdisciplinary. Did you know at that time that you were going to be a journalist? No, I knew that I was going to be a writer. I have known that since second grade. I've known that since uh, not only because ever since second grade, teachers would often sort of call me out and have me read my stuff in front of the class and all that, but also because I wasn't terribly good at anything else. Like I was terrible at math and sciences. I knew that for me, you know, the being a realtor or an actuary was just kind of out of the question. Uh, And I really loved writing. Writing was how I processed the world and how I connected to the world. But I imagined myself... Andrea, as, as a fiction writer, that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to write novels. And, and I did, in fact, you know, write several. One of them has been published in 1999. Knopf published a novel of mine. But that was really my first love. It was only after I graduated from college. And I couldn't quite figure out the career path for being a novelist, announcing to the world, hey, I'm a novelist, and then, you know, writing manuscripts, which, in fact, I did do. I, I nonetheless still had a hunger to, like, be writing. And I, and I decided after a while, what I want to do is write for a living. I don't want to write on the side. I don't want to be writing at night while, you know, the kids are in bed or something before I go do my eight to five job the next morning. And so I began writing for uh, music reviews, um, first for the campus publication at the University of Texas, the Daily Texan, uh, which actually has produced a lot of really fine writers, including Amy Chozik of the New York Times, who just published a wonderful book about Hil- about her covering Hillary Clinton over the years, chasing Hillary. But then after that, uh, there was a, a fledgling arts and entertainment weekly called the Austin Chronicle. And I wrote music reviews for them. I did that for a while. And then I just decided, you know, I, um, this is what I enjoy doing. I want to f- be a freelance journalist for a living. So I quit my day job and, and just began sending out query letters to any publication who I thought might be willing to publish something of mine. And I really was a scrapper for several years. And, and it was not an easy way at all to make a living. I mean, I was making a less than a subsistence living, really. But I just decided this is this is what I'd rather do than anything else. This is what I want to be known as. And uh, there are plenty of other people who've taken different paths than the one that I elected to take and made out just fine. So I'm not suggesting that method that I employed is suitable for other people. And, and I would say that, that you know, one area that, that I wished I had done better was that I wish that I had, I wish I had happened upon the notion of journalism earlier while I was in college and began to do whatever I could, whether it's in um, writing programs that the University of Texas had or something else to, to prepare myself so that I wouldn't be starting utterly from scratch once you know, I graduated um, from college, but I didn't take any journalism courses and really, as I say, only decided that, uh, you know, magazine journalism was something I was interested in until, you know, a couple of years or so after I'd graduated. So just to clarify, your first job out of school was what? Uh, right out of college, uh, I was I edited technical uh, technical translations for a translation company. Uh, I um, worked odd jobs. The oddest of which was that I worked for 
a guy who created um, synthetic drug-free urine, which he would sell to uh, members of the military who needed to pass their drug test. And I worked as his assistant, or as I called it, his urine lackey. And I actually did these things to be able to afford to eat for a period of about four years or so out of college before I finally decided, before I could finally get my journalism career in gear. I have to say urine lackey. That is the first time I've heard that job title. Yeah, yeah, no, it's and it's not one that I mean I have written about it, but it's but it's not exactly something you put on your resume. Well, but you know, you were able to make ends meet so that you could eventually move into the career that you wanted to. Yeah, and Austin, Texas, you know, was filled with people who had uh, quirky jobs. Um, even with that uh, having been said, urine lackey is definitely at the top of the odd jobs list. We've all had low points in our professions. You've just touched on it right out of the gate at the beginning of your career. But are there any other moments where you've had to really dig deep to keep going? And how did you keep your spirits up? How did you keep putting one foot in front of the other? If you don't mind just sharing a personal story that might provide some comfort to those out there who are perhaps in a similar boat. I'm happy to share those stories. Um, It's really difficult to break in as a writer. And I was lucky. I remember that early on, while I was writing for this fledgling arts and entertainment magazine um, publication, the Austin Chronicle, a guy who was a young editor at Esquire had read something of mine and was interested in in getting me to write for him. And so it was a real break. He assigned me a story and I did it. It wasn't very good, but they paid me in full for it anyway. They never published it, but they still you know, thought a lot of me or this this young editor did and wanted to take a chance on me. So he, he assigned me another story. I remember I spent, you know, a month or two months working on the story and then turned it in. Of course, I thought it was spectacular. He didn't like it at all. But he said to me, look, you know, this is this needs a lot of work. But Robert, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get this story in shape. However many drafts it needs to go through, I will be there with you. So that was comforting for me. So I worked very hard on the second draft, turned it in. And he killed the story. At that point, he, he said, no, <laughs> that's enough. Uh, the young editor and I happened to have a friend in common, a guy who was a much more established writer than I was. And that friend who is you know, not the nicest person in the world, was kind of a friend of me to me, uh, told me that he happened to be at Esquire magazine and visiting this, this uh, editor and had said, hey, uh, whatever happened to that story by Robert Draper? And he reported to me that this editor had said, Robert Draper has a long, long way to go. And at that point, when I when this guy said this to me, I just felt like at the absolute bottom. I had tried so hard and I just wondered if I had it left in me to keep trying. And and I indulged in self-pity and, and real fretfulness for a period of a couple of days. But then I just became you know very determined. For one thing, I had already spent a few years working at this and I didn't see what else I could do. The truth is, is that even in failure, I still loved the process. And and so I, I felt like, you know, I'm onto something. I'm doing what I ought to be doing. Okay, maybe I'm not as good as I ought to be right now. Well, I'm just gonna I'm gonna get good and and I'm gonna prove to this editor among other people that I am good enough. Now flash forward, that was in nineteen eighty six. In two thousand two or two thousand three, I wrote my first story for the New York Times magazine and this guy, Adam Moss, was the editor in chief of the New York Times magazine at that point. One of the editors there assigned me a story. I wrote that story. It was a good story, not a political story. It was actually a murder story. Uh, and it was accepted and was published and it was quite successful. So I wrote Adam Moss, the editor, um, uh, an email and said, you know, I, I 
doubt you would remember this at all, but you, you know, you remember that story I did a long time ago and you'd mentioned to this other guy, Draper's got a long, long way to go. And I, and I'm just glad that it's happened. You know, that now after all these years, I'm able to, you know, publish a story for you that that's mutually satisfactory. And he wrote back and Adam did and, and said, uh, you know, whatever I said or whatever I thought back then, you reached whatever long, long way to go. I felt like you needed to go. You reached that, you know, some time ago. It was a very um, sweet and vindicating moment. But what it proved, you know, was that this is not an easy thing to do, writing. Everyone we know wants to be a writer. I mean, I, I wish I had a dollar for every person who's told me they have a novel in them or they, they'd love to have my life, as they put it. The reality is it's a kind of a cruel winnowing process that takes place in the world of journalism. But there's a certain justice to it. it all of the rejections that pile up early help to weed out the people who really didn't love it so much to begin with. They might love the idea of writing, but they really loved being published. They loved, you know, the acclamation. They loved the idea of being a writer more than the process of it. I actually loved the process so much that I was willing to put up with all the rejection and all of the loneliness that the first several years of my attempts as a freelance journalist entailed. But all of that's to say, Andrew, that, you know, I didn't start at, you know, on third base. I mean, I started, you know, in the bot- in the batter's box, just whiffing away. But you know, I kept swinging and those who are listening should know that that's really what it takes. You you should never expect to start, you know, somewhere in the middle or uh, much less at the top. But starting at the bottom has its virtues too. I learned a lot through those years of being rejected. And after I wrote my first book, a really wonderful magazine, Texas Monthly hired me as a staff writer. They were the magazine that was just one mile away from where I lived. And I must have sent them 15 or 20 queries, you know, story ideas that the editor in chief just said, nope, 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 to one after the next. And I kept plugging at it. But but those nopes also helped me understand what it was that they wanted. And they also helped me be strong. Even as I tried to improve and tried to be better, I knew I could rely on myself. These are valuable things that come not from success. They come from rejection. Thank you so much for sharing that. Final time for coffee question. If you could go back to UT Austin and do it all over again, based on what you know now, what might you do differently? Well, first, what I would try to do is um, take seriously the courses that were being offered to me and which I perfunctorily took and made A's in, but to make A's, not to learn as much as I could about them. I'm talking about you know history and legal affairs and, and government and literature courses that were, I think, really offered material and offered insights that could be proved useful to me later in my career that I didn't fully appreciate back then. I think as well, that I was writing fiction while I was while I was in college, but I was not really thinking practically about how uh, my career path could establish itself, how the tools that were available as a result of being at a fine university like the UT could offer me. There were journalists and writers who came on campus, and I just never bothered to spend any time you know, going to see them. And I wish I had. I wish that I had enrolled in some journalism courses, not because I think that you can't be a journalist without taking journalism courses. You certainly can. And in fact, the most journalists that I know of were not journalism majors. But nonetheless, there are things you can learn you know, about how to write a story and what you're audiences and how to interact with editors. Uh, So I do think that there is a lot to be said for a young person going to 
college and just absorbing all there is that can be absorbed and not being utterly preoccupied from day one about how am I going to make a living. I would hesitate to say that um, that people should do that, that they should you know, immediately start forging their career path. But I do think that, that it's helpful. And I wish that I had been fully appreciative of this. If you have some sense of what you're going to do, then at least use what the university has available to help you refine your knowledge about that particular path to ask as many questions as you can. I loved my experience at the University of Texas, but I graduated in three and a half years. I have no idea why I rushed through it as quickly as I did and um, and wish that I had slowed down more and opened every pore, uh, learned as much as I could from my professors and proactively reached out to those people and institutions who could have helped me think about if I want to be a writer for a living, what does that entail? What are the various paths that I can consider? Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.